the quantum mechanics. Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And um, a couple of things I just wanted to talk about before we get into the main episode. Firstly, we got such a great response to our um, Yuri Geller, Randy, uh, James Randy episode we did last week. Um, I think what was amazing, because we were kind of angling about the feud between the two of them and it was that I was quite obsessed with that yeah just the feedback that we had on um on Facebook especially among a lot of the remote group remote viewing groups what really surprised me is how many people had either met Yuri Geller or James Randi yeah I saw that as well yeah I didn't realize um particularly James Randi because I thought he spent most of his time in America yeah 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 which was really interesting and kind of like we highlighted in the episode there's real mixed bag you know people were like didn't like randy people who'd met him said he was absolutely lovely so yeah it was a really interesting debate and the second thing i just wanted to briefly mention was a little chuckle i had to myself when uh and, it, and i did work out what it was about i was just the uh, tv was on and i saw one of those ticker headlines that comes on the news and it said NASA successfully crashed spaceship into asteroid. <laughs> and I thought, God, they're spin and PR people are good, aren't they? <laughs> then I realised what the story was about. That was actually, I tried to stay up to watch that, but it was it was in the end just too late. But yeah. I saw it on uh, replay, but yeah, it was good. But the thing that kind of scared me when I did see it on replay was, you know, they've said, oh, this thing's not coming to Earth. It's just a little test. It was how ecstatic the people in the control room was. I was wondering if there was some conspiracy going in. Thank God it works. We might be <laughs> saved. Is there something they're not telling us? But who knows? But yeah, they're, they're, uh, it's, I love that though. NASA successfully crashed spaceship into asteroid. I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was that was quite that was quite a thing. Um, and funnily enough, we're going into space this week, oh. in a way. Oh, nice segue. Hey. <laughs> that was an easy <laughs> segue. Oh, I just, I wish I'd tried harder. I wish I'd started talking about avocados again. <laughs> funnily enough, we're going to go into avocados. No, we're not going into avocados. But um, we're going to have a little look at alien abductions, but one very very specific case which i hadn't come across before so a lot of the time you hear about alien abductions and they often are reported in the states and often it's more about the mechanics of it right so people talking about um the the ship that they saw and missing time and things like that and very rarely do we hear things that happened on the ship and if we do it normally comes through regression yeah and it's often got a message of either love and light and you've got to be careful with nuclear weapons and all that sort of thing and sometimes you get accounts where you know people have been brought on board and they've maybe had sex with some alien being and there's talk about um, I don't know, hybrid babies and hybridization and that sort of that sort of thing. Yeah. But often we get this love and light. Yep. Yep. And it got me thinking, there's been there's quite a few books that kind of skirt the topic. One of the best is one called um, Dark White by Jim Schnabel and who's a I guess he he's a reporter more than an author. Right. And he goes on a journey to try and disprove alien abduction and kind of can't and you might remember that i made a tv program called abduct me about yes. it yeah. which was it that that was a bit of a moment for me as well because i started to realize it started as an entertainment program and very quickly i met people who were quite damaged and i actually didn't like making the program and I had to change the way i was going about it because i felt like either these people were suffering from delusions right. and it was affecting them or they were suffering from something real that was affecting them but either way yeah either the trauma of it being real or something that they needed to express it in this this way of alien abduction either way you have to tread carefully don't you yeah so this week i'm going into the work of an author called gavin davis and the book is called harvest the true story of alien abduction uh. And it takes place in Wales. Yeah. Now, Wales has been in the, the news quite a lot over the, well, 
when you actually look at it, 50 years when it comes down to UFOs, we've got the Welsh Triangle. Yeah. Recently, um, Kaz Clark has been talking about um, what she believes was a wit- she witnessed an encounter between the military and a UFO in 2016 in Penturk. There was the one with the kids, wasn't there, in the school? That was in Wales, yeah, um, Yes, funnily enough, that sort of comes into okay. this this story. But the book is, is written as an interview that is takes place over a long period of time with uh, anonymized people and the anonymous person that he's talking to he gives her the name Susan and he he quickly points out at the top that um she has withdrawn herself from you won't find her on social you know he knows her true identity you won't find her anywhere because her experiences destroyed her life and this is a very very clear account of the most extraordinary abduction that i've ever come across and if it's real then everything that we've been speculating about around hybridization and what their true goal of being here is then it's kind of terrifying and and would you say i mean the author is he is he coming is he coming in for a believer, a sceptic, or somewhere in between? Well, so he has written other paranormal books, you know, factual ones. He says that he doesn't know whether to believe her or not. Right. But um, there's, a, there's a good reason um, at the end as to why he thinks that there is something in this. He, halfway through the book... He actually says there's a conversation where he says, I think you should get medical help and I'm not sure that I should publish this. And she, Susan, loses her rag and says, no, 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 you have to publish this. I haven't been through everything I'm going through recounting this to you without you putting it in a book. You need to tell people because I am not going mad. Everything that happened here is true. So... I guess, as with everything, make up your own mind. But I've never seen an account like this. This comes at it from the human angle. This is all about her experience. This is less about the mechanics of it, if you see what I mean. But the mechanics of it do come into it. But it starts off with him meeting her, and he sets the scene by saying that, um, you know, she lives in Haverford West, I should point out, which is a beautiful little town um uh, in uh, in wales and he says um he'd never seen her before but haverford west is is a very small community and he was kind of surprised that he hadn't seen her before and uh he describes her building as being quite close to the river near the high street which descends steeply and uh, the roads branch off in veins and she lives down one of these roads and he talks about how picturesque her building is this just sort of says you know this is this is somebody living a normal life in Haverford West in a kind of idyllic yeah location and when she comes to the door she's dressed in hoodie and joggers it's a kind of a big flat and uh, he points out that it smells of patchouli and cigarette smoke and that is important later on and she before she sits down she says to him my family do not understand what i've been going through what i am going through and i can't blame them they're intelligent professional people i'm not going into my background my education the area i grew up in i want to remain anonymous i will remain anonymous at all costs pembrokeshire is a small place people can work out your identity from the smallest clue so that sort of sets the scene for the conversation that he he then has and she dives straight into her story she describes the first time she knows that something is wrong and she goes away on a self-catering trip with a number of her girlfriends and uh, their dog called lenny and they go to this farmhouse not too far away from where she lives and uh, she describes it's a huge huge old stone building large living room oak beams fireplace with wood burning logs you know you can get the you get the picture and in the building itself there are three bedrooms and her friends stay stay there and there's another building which she bags is straight away and she takes lenny to guard her because you know 
they're, they're down a long bumpy track and it it's sort of she feels a bit vulnerable wasn't a chihuahua was it no he's a big dog apparently <laughs> okay. all right good um and she's very pleased with herself for getting this um separate apartment and she is checking it out and i should point out they're expecting some uh, some of their male friends to come down they're going to have a bit of a party and she's in the bathroom and it, she says it's got a low frosted window uh, with a wooden sill and it faces out towards the the track um coming down uh, to to the house and there's a skylight above there and she's thinking about how lucky she is to have got this apartment and she's happy that she's got the dog there with her and she says she sees what she thinks are headlights of a car driving down the track and she says well that's a bit weird because in no way the guys could have got there that quickly her friend only spoke to them five minutes ago and it takes 30 minutes to get from the road to them and she thought well look there's somebody else visiting they've taken a wrong turn um, and once you're on that track there's nowhere to turn you have to reverse back around the bends it would be difficult i suspect that's what it is and she puts the whole thing down to either a car or an aeroplane and she goes and joins her friends and they laugh listen to music as it turns out the the chaps don't actually turn up so it's just the girls and they get quite drunk and as the fire dies they think well let's go to bed because tomorrow we want to go out and explore and of course they've got the dog and they want to take him out for a walk the next thing she knows things are going very badly wrong and they go badly wrong very quickly she wakes up in a panic and she's about to sit up when the entire room is filled with a bright white light and she describes six thick bright columns of light pouring through the skylight and they merge into one she hears lenny barking and he jumps off the bed she couldn't move she props up on one elbow shielding her eyes and she hears a crash and the light quickly disappears and she describes she's in darkness she thinks that the girls will probably hear the commotion and run over. But she then thinks better of it and decides just to make a run for the door and get out. She can hear Lenny growling ferociously in the darkness and things being knocked over. But she says she felt like her retinas had been burned and she couldn't make anything out. You know that thing where you've been staring into a light bulb? Yeah, yeah, especially if it's dark, isn't it? When you kind of even, even a, a reasonably small light just... As soon as you turn it off again, you're completely blinded, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, she says there's this blue smoky flash and the room is illuminated for a second, like someone had taken a picture. And she sees the outline of Lenny attacking a small black skinny figure. There's another blue flash and a high-pitched ringing and a howl. Another flash and she saw Lenny crumpled in a heap on the floor. He was still and silent. Another flash and Lenny was nowhere to be seen. Another flash and a black featureless face, mere inches from her face, and she screams. Then, as in so many of these cases, she's knocked out. And she doesn't wake up until 7.44 with a terrible pain in her head. She says it's like a migraine, but worse. She reaches out for the water and it's not there. The glass is broken on the floor. She thinks, well, perhaps I knocked it over during my nightmare. She goes to sit up, but she's got these terrible cramping pains all through her body. Like a ship, a sheer putt, a sharp piercing pain in her back even. She says, I know I was drunk the night before, this, but this is not a hangover. And as you can imagine, the dog isn't there. I was going to ask about Lenny. I know. Um, and this is the first of a few unfortunate pet incidents but um obviously she has a, a, a an awkward conversation with her friends sean who's the dog's owner is deeply upset they search for days she describes but they don't know where he is and this this is the first time that the this encounter ruins a friendship because of course sean blames her she yeah, says yeah. you didn't lock the door my dog yeah. ran away you were supposed to be looking after the dog what have you done yeah, yeah exactly yeah, okay. And, of course, how does she tell somebody that an alien killed her dog, even though she doesn't believe that at the time? She just thinks it's a nightmare. Yeah. And it's a mystery about the dog. Yeah. 
So this is all hugely traumatic for her. And, and I don't know if you know at this point, Did um, she said she thought the noise would, you know, wake her friends and stuff like that. Did they Did they report any noise or stuff? Was they, quite... they heard nothing. Wow, okay. They heard nothing. Okay. So she goes back to where she lives and, she, you know, she's metaphorically licking her wounds. She's devastated about the dog. She's devastated that this is ruining her friendship. And an old school friend gives her a call this is a this is a fella and there's an implication here that maybe she's got you know a friends with benefits type relationship with him yeah and he suggested to her that they go for a drive and get some food down at pembroke dock so that's what they do they drive down to pembroke dock and they cross the there's a long toll bridge down there you can find it on google maps and they've got their burgers and they're looking out across the estuary and she says the sun's beginning to set. It's early, maybe six. And she spots a beacon coming over the water. And this light grows bigger and bigger. And she said, I realised it was moving at quite some speed. I convinced myself it had got to be like a large boat or an aircraft. But the light got closer and it became obvious that it was a bright orange ball, almost like a flame like a ball of fire trapped in a glass ball. Adrian, her friend, becomes distraught. He says it's going to hit the car park. He tries to start the car, but it won't start. And she says, I instinctively threw my arms in front of my face because I thought this thing was going to hit us. But it just came over the top of them and suddenly to a standstill and hovered for a few seconds. There was this bright orange fiery glow everything in the car was dead the air was charged with static she said she could hear the popping as a result of air rapidly expanding and collapsing in the car and then it shot off at great speed down the estuary towards the bridge and this is something that other encounters have described even kaz clark describes it was looking at me this is what she says she says it was looking at me that's a great description though isn't it of the the ball of fire and yeah, amazing. And Gavin, the author, checks, and there are a number of reports on that night of people seeing unusual activity. Um, some some anglers saw this, as did some motorists crossing the bridge. And uh, it also relates to some other incidents around that time. So um, in March and April, other people saw very similar things, but nobody describes what she described with this thing stop, stopping on, uh, above her. So, wow, okay. So not only has she seen it, the person who's in the car with her has seen it and confirmed it. Yeah. And there are other witnesses who've seen either exactly the same thing or something similar. I mean, that's 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 quite powerful. Yeah. And, and this causes her to fall out with Adrian as well because he's so excited about what he's seen. He's trying to get a search party together. Right. And he's phoning his friends and she's like, no, I just want to go home. And he accuses her of being selfish. She's scared at this point. Yeah. And so he just drops her off at the bus stop and she goes home <laughs> in tears. Nice. You're what a nice guy. <laughs> I know, I know. You feel really oh, sad for her. Yeah. This thing is already <laughs> ruining friendship after friendship. Oh. But that night, she gets the first of three very peculiar but vivid dreams. And they're all roughly the same. On the first night, she says she finds herself walking down this dark country lane and she says she can hear the wind in the trees and she's walking with a tall man. She can't see his face, but she's, he's, she's holding his hand and she says she feels very small. He seems gigantic compared to her. And then she says, well, maybe, maybe I'm dreaming that I'm a little girl, but I can't recall this event ever happening in my life. I don't think it's a memory. And she tries to look at the man's face, but it's in shadow. And she says she could feel the chill of the night on my face and on my knees. So it's like I'm wearing a dress or a skirt or maybe some bed clothes. And the sky is cloudy. There's no moonlight or anything like that. But she says she feels, this is all in the dream, she feels safe and calm walking with her companion. And then there's a light behind them on the road. And the man's voice says, we have to run now. Don't look behind. And she says, in my dream, I think, why do I have to run? It's just a car driving from behind. We'll be fine. We'll just move to the side of the road. But the light becomes intense and we run. And the man takes great strides and I struggle to keep up. There's a blinding flash and I scream as I feel the man's hand let go of mine. 
and then she finds herself halfway along the high street in Haverford West, again in the dream. Right. And she's walking down the hill, flanked by the big old buildings on either side, and it's snowing. There's Christmas lights everywhere. At the bottom of the high street, the pubs were closed, but I look towards Key Street and again see Christmas lights and also a bright, warm glow. It's the doorway of a bar that's not usually there. I walk into the light and climb up the stairs. It's warm and cosy in contrast to the chill outside. Lonely this Christmas is playing on a jukebox and there's a drink ready for her on the bar. And she picks it up and she feels all the tenseness in her shoulders drift away. And she's relaxed and content and a real good Christmas feeling. And then she notices in the mirror there's a figure walking past and it sits down at one of the small round tables. It's not shaking Stevens, is it? Have you read this before? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's bloody Cliff Richard. (laughs) No, it's much scarier than that. Okay. It's her grandmother. Oh, wow. Okay. Her grandmother who died of cancer when she was 10. Right. And that is also important to the story. She drops the glass and it smashes and she's shocked to see her. But she ends up having this conversation with her grandmother and then, and, and this is something which I have come across with, before in paranormal encounters, usually around spirits. This grandmother says, they needed my help. I had to help some of her friends. I had to be brave, and no matter what happened, she was here with me. She reached across the table and held my hand. Her hand was warm and reassuring. Her voice then said that they were here. And the jukebox stopped and the lights dimmed. Now, that would be wow. <laughs> that would be terrifying. Wow. But then this really weird thing happens. She finds herself in a cinema with scenes from her local town playing out. And it's all serene and touristy. There's, there's old people having fun down by the beach. There's people buying ice cream, walking around. And then she wakes up and she finds she's wet the bed and she immediately vomits. And all that week, she says she can't keep any food down. Can I just stop you and just ask you about the grandmother, actually? I mean, maybe you'll get onto this, mm. so, so let me know if I'm jumping ahead of the game. But is there a suggestion that that is some kind of paranormal uh, message that's coming from her grandmother, or is it just she's, she's making sense of things in a dream? No, this is, this is the entity's manipulating her oh okay so it's not even paranormal as in so it wasn't her grandma it was them no yeah, okay, okay no because okay. wait wait till right. you see who else she meets okay and it is a shaky steve um but when she wakes up so she says you know all that week by the way i couldn't keep any food down but she hears her auntie who who works different ship, shift patterns to her because it's she lives with her and she describes being so relieved to hear her and she walks downstairs and there's her auntie sat watching TV in the living room. And um, unfortunately, you're going to know where this is going at some point. But she's sitting with her cat, Moggs. Okay. Poor Moggs. Uh, but her auntie gives her a cup of tea and some toast and runs her a bath and says, look, I'm going to call the university because she's a student. I'm going to tell them you're not going to be in for the rest of the week. The three of them with Mog sit down and watch some TV and films for the week. We just chill. You've been, there's so much stress going on in your life, particularly with losing Lenny and your friends are cross with you. This is just the nightmares that come from it. And so that night her, her auntie gives her two sleeping tablets and they go to bed and her auntie says, look, just so you're comfortable, our rooms are opposite each other. We'll keep the doors open and you can see me. Whenever you wake up, you can see me. So I get into bed, I look across, and there's Auntie. There's Mogs asleep lying next to her. And she sees, feels the tablets working. It's like, all right, okay, this is, this, is just, this is just nightmares. But as soon as she falls asleep, the same thing happens. There's the car light, comes from behind. There's the man screaming. There I am on this snow-covered high street. She walks into the bar... And this time, she meets her own seven-year-old self with a missing tooth that she says she can remember losing. And she has this conversation with her. 
and it's quite long but the most important part of it is she then she starts asking the child starts asking the adult her really peculiar questions she says if i had a baby would i love it more than my own life he says i was confused and found it difficult to relate to at first and then in my head there's this new voice deep and empty and sexless i don't know if it's a man or a woman it screams she won't and it's not my voice and it's not the voice of the younger me it's coming from outside and she says in her dream she starts getting angry and she's calling out at this she calls it a perverted voice and she you know absolutely furious about this and again she sees the cinema and this time the images are a little bit different she goes into some detail and then they're not super important at this stage but she wakes up in bed and she feels this huge pressure on her chest just like sleep paralysis so that sort of comes into it but she also says there's this rushing in my ears and i shift my eyes to the right and i can see auntie and mogs across the hall asleep in their bed auntie had left a light on i saw a tall slim hazy figure pass the hallway then i saw something that was so unbelievably strange it's a i can only describe it as a jellyfish it's on top of my auntie in the bed it had this large bulbous transparent mass for a body and it was filled with what looked like bioilluminated lights you know the sort of things that you see on creatures in yeah, the sea yeah, yeah. those 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 uh, what they call it the depth zone or whatever yeah yeah and the lights in the body flashed red yellows blues there seemed to be like a sack on its back like a lung that was opening and closing and emitting a yellow mist or gas and it was on top of her aunt and i wanted to scream i wanted to wake up and warn her i wanted to get up and throw it off but i couldn't and then i noticed the same thing was happening to poor mogs she was being lifted into the air with these foul tendrils up her nose and mouth and then she blacks out the next thing she knows it's the morning and she can hear her auntie vomiting and she goes to help her in the bathroom and her auntie's throwing up blood the cat is downstairs severely distressed and obviously ill auntie dismisses it all as a bug but she says no i know something more was happening wow that's incredible imagery isn't it it is i mean even if it is some sleep paralysis or you know uh, delusion it's it's incredibly detailed i think the other thing that was interesting is that idea that dreams replaying themselves always fascinates me do you know what i mean it's like the walking down the high street it's christmas and then off to the cinema it's it's kind of rare that you kind of have things that follow that same pattern but they are slightly different so that's intriguing to me and and this weird um insinuation first a relative you got to help my friends yeah the second asking about babies yeah it's all very odd and uh just there was one question i had about the time span of this so from going to the farm to this point do we know roughly how long that is this is about a week later wow okay so this is a very short space of time okay slightly less yeah um and the next night i i'm obviously pricing this otherwise i'd just be (laughs) reading the whole book out but these are these are the salient points the next night she gets this other dream it's the final of this sort of sequence but it's the most disturbing yet on the screen of the cinema that she gets to witness it's like a vision from hell it is you know that bit in terminator 2 when the nuclear bomb goes off and all the children are burned yeah 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 it's that there's a school sports day but all the children are dead and burning and there's limbs everywhere and the mothers are screaming and she says it's just terrifying and she wakes up again with this kind of feeling awful and the panic but sadly that day they have to bury mog the cat has died her eyes are covered in pus her nose is scabbed her mouth is covered in spittle her auntie says she must have eaten some poison but there she is standing next to her as they bury the cat she's wrapped in a big parka coat and coughing uncontrollably 
she was really ill. And the strange thing is, it had come on so suddenly. My only thought was it had something to do with those jellyfish-like creatures who had put their tendrils into them both. That was the aunt who was incredibly ill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And she says, my own health is suffering really badly. I've got heavy, painful periods, sweats, diarrhoea, vomiting, pains in my head, my neck, behind my eyes. And she even points out that the part-time job she's working at, she gets warned because they think um, she's taking drugs. They say they're going to do a drugs test on her. So this is all, this is all awful. And she goes back to her room sobbing because she thinks that she's bought this all on her aunt. And she wonders whether, you know, her aunt is blaming her for Mog's death. But she's so weak and exhausted, she's got no fight left in her. Um, I'm really interested about the description of the creatures as well, because not being that stereotypical kind of grey or anything like that, it's it's a very vivid image. It was reminding me of uh, a bit of Arrival, you know, those creatures in Arrival or um, Monster, if you've ever, Monsters, if you've ever seen that. Film. Yeah. Apart from them, they're much bigger, but yeah, wow. We're going to meet them again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to meet them again. <laughs> By the end of the month, she's decided to move back with her parents. And she says she starts to feel a bit better. Um, she's Her dreams have returned to normal. She feels like her health is coming back. And she does start to dismiss it as, maybe I was just poorly. You know, maybe this was a thing. The doctor had diagnosed her auntie with flu. So she's like, maybe I've just had, you know, something similar. And then the dreams start again. And these aren't quite as disturbing as the others, but they're always the same. She's walking naked through a stream and it's at night and the stream is sort of surrounded by trees. It's woodland and everything's bathed in a red light there's no star or moon and no street lights it's out somewhere deep in the countryside she's not cold or afraid just walking through this stream and then onto a stony bank and up into a field and the grass is high maybe it's a crop sort of up to her knees and there's always a beautiful fox sat in the grass just staring at her bathed in the red light and that's the dream basically and that doesn't particularly worry her, except the day after she gets this first dream, she finds out that her auntie is in hospital. She's dying from cancer. It's come on so quickly, but her body is riddled and it's obviously going to be fatal. Mm. And it's at this point where the author points out, um, before we get on to the next bit, the similarities um between the sighting that she had of the red ball and some of the things that were happening in this Welsh triangle, Mm. which really started in the 50s, but not to go into it too deeply, but he points out, like, in Christmas 1975, two UFOs landed near Haverford West. The first one was described as a glowing reddish ball which descended into a wood, and the witnesses couldn't find um, the ball. They thought they were witnessing an aircraft going down and um then there's another one where um this is from the western telegraph two youths fled in terror from a field uh on a clarbeston road farm last week when they saw a strange ball of light shoot off into the night from right in front of them a 15 year old and a 17 year old said they could see the light shining through the hedge around 20 yards away it rose up in front of a tractor and disappeared and then of course you mentioned the broadhaven sighting where lots of children saw uh, a craft i think there were 15 eyewitness reports of a craft landing and actually seeing a being and it, the headmaster separated the class and got them all to draw it. And um, that was, you know, there's loads like that. There's loads and there's lots of books written about it. I, I always remember there was another one. I can't remember. You may, it may be one of the ones you mentioned where pretty sure the UFO had lopped off tops of trees as it was coming down or. Oh uh, yeah. That's, um, that's the Penteric incident. That's the Kaz Clark one. Yeah. Where she actually saw, a pyramid um, sort of materialise 
and there were AWACS aircraft watching it, and then yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, but we sort of where is all this heading, right? Because this is all at the moment. This is dreams. This is almost sort of um, similar to what people might get if they were being uh, hypnotised yeah. and and asking for something. Or, or you know, you you mentioned it briefly earlier. You know, some kind of sleep paralysis thing going on, but. I think what's interesting, if it if you did go down a sleep paralysis route, there are you've got the ball of light, which obviously wasn't a sleep paralysis incident where she was with uh, her friend, and there were other witnesses to that. And also, you can't move, so it's not like you could knock a glass over necessarily or let a dog out or any of those things. So it does seem more complex than that. It is, and we're just moving on to the part of the story where this is the bit where. It's the the hardest to, I guess, believe, but it's also the most disturbing. But it's the bit that she remembers with full consciousness. This is the bit where she says all of these dreams are leading up to what happens now. And it all starts with her driving along and suddenly, for no reason, she feels the urge to break and right in front of her is this beautiful fox so this isn't a dream this is this is her in a waking moment this is consciously recalled right okay and she's staring at this fox and she becomes completely enthralled by its beauty she says she's noticing every little marking on it and it turns and looks her straight in the eye and it's almost like its eyes are welling up with tears and then I was gone. She said she's blacked out. And she then says, as vivid as I am speaking to you now and more intense than before, I found myself stepping out of some woodland. The sky was red. Everything was bathed in that red light, that glow. I was naked. I crossed the stream, stony pebbles sticking to my feet, the coldness sharp and biting. In my dreams, I felt like I was being drawn along, but this time I was in control of my actions. I knew I had to get to the tall grass, as I knew something unwelcome was in the woodlands behind. Then there's an owl. She sees an owl. This is the, you know, wow. Okay. (laughs) As if if everything we've been talking about. I was waiting for the owl to chip up. (laughs) Yeah, the owl has turned up. And she says she wraps her arms around herself and she has this thought that if i don't find clothes or shelter soon i'm gonna die it's freezing out here and there in the field is a shape and she runs towards it it was a naked black lady somewhat older than i with tight short black hair just walking along i ran up to her and she grabbed hold of me chattering frantically in a language i couldn't understand we held each other close the warmth of her body was reassuring against the cold of the night I didn't know how to reply. I just said, let's keep moving. We need to find help and pointed forward. Her eyes were wide and terrifying, but she understood what I was saying. In the tall grass, we found another lady, older and just as naked and exposed as all of us. She was terribly old. Uh, She was sobbing, but at least she spoke English. It was obvious she was suffering from dementia because she was just saying over and over, was she in bed? The other lady and I took each her each by took her by each arm and continued walking through the tall grass, looking for a road or a farmhouse or anything really. I don't know how long we were walking, but we discovered others. We found and huddled with a blind German woman, and I found a little girl, no more than five or six, whom I carried. Eventually there were dozens of us, walking silently, herd like, towards a deep red glow on the horizon. There seemed to be no end in sight, just an unbearably infinite field of long grass. I was tired, aching from the cold and from carrying the child. I felt like I could just crash down and bury my face in the soil. This, you see, this is where I think either this is real or this is somebody who enjoys sci-fi writing. But remember, when you're listening to this, this is being communicated via a conversation being recorded by the author and she is she's not just saying this and as if it was nothing she's in bits when she's saying this she's chain smoking she's full of tears she gets angry she's frustrated with 
the sort of the notion that no one will believe her. And because the imagery is incredible. Yeah. And the implications of, you know, multiple people being taken from multiple countries and ending up in the same field and stuff. It's incredible. Well, wait till we get inside the spacecraft. Oh, God. But this is the only thing that I, when I was reading this, I was like, this is. It's very, yeah. It's very, st- it's very close to Cows of the Third Kind in a way. It's kind of if you were going to remake Close Encounters as a pure horror film. Do you know what I mean? It, oh yeah. yeah it, it, you know, I mean, I, I, it's that point you said about the imagination. You know, I'm struck by it's not the almost. Let, let's go with it is a fantasy rather than a reality. If we go with that. I just love the fact that they've picked a alien creature that's not your stereotypical grey. The whole dream sequency stuff is incredible imagery, and that thing you've just described is like, wow. Well, the next thing that they know, the ground moves and they get pulled upwards. And I, I have really been very careful and I'm only going to describe some of the things that she says. You, you need to go and buy the book because um, it, it, it's not really something I can't really talk about all of it on um, on this podcast. Because if you've got, I mean, this isn't really suitable for anyone under 14, but this is, there's some very dark stuff that happens. Right. But when she, after being sucked upwards along with everybody else, she comes to... And she stood in a line of women in the gloom of a dark room. There's red lights set in the floor beneath. And I look behind me and I cannot see the black woman, the child or the senile lady. Behind me was a woman also naked with her head down, hair matted to her face, holding herself. I tried to ask her where we were, but I couldn't find the words to speak. I could see that her mouth was taped up with a skin coloured plastic. I tried to pull at mine, but could not find an overlap to tug at. It was as if it had been inserted into my face and not on top of it. I felt no pain where it had been inserted, just a very strange sensation. From in front, over what must have been a line of dozens of women, all single files slowly walking forward, was a bright red light. The red light was moving towards me and over the line of women. As it got closer, I could see that it was an object a bright red light with two enormous metal wings either side. I thought, (laughs) that is an owl, but it's a robotic one. The woman in front of me started, sorry, the women in front of me started to panic and covered their heads as the winged light flew over us, dispensing a spray. I felt the droplets go all over my hair, onto my shoulders, some of it onto my face, and suddenly I began to feel calm, almost content. The owl light disappeared out of view, and from what I could only imagine was dozens, if not more, women like me. We emerged into a larger room, brighter. The walls had some sort of organic substance growing on them, almost like, and this sounds weird, mincemeat. I can't explain what it was, only what it looked like. It was like little tubes of solid meat, tiny tubes. There was more room to move, and some women stepped out of the column. Some fell, some crouched down, some stretched. Everyone looked terrified, but too subdued to do anything about it. I looked for an exit, somewhere to hide, but I couldn't even begin to comprehend where I was. It was as if my basic instinct to fight or flight had been turned off. Whether it was a substance sprayed on me, I don't know. Um, I could only speculate. But I was sick until I couldn't be sick anymore, and I witnessed what looked like... This is the... Yeah, this comes with a warning. I looked what looked like half men, the bottom half of men from the waist down, everything below intact in just a cluster of pipes and wires, tendrils for a torso, the rest of the body attached to an overhead pipe or something. I've no idea what had become of the rest of the bodies, but these legs were moving, their penises erect, and a series of women on conveyor belts shackled down by an organic mass like coral, something so strange were presented for insemination. I saw in one section below us a whole area of women giving birth, lying on the mincemeat-like substance on the floor. No one helping, they just lay there screaming and panting, the still pregnant mothers huddled against the wall, hands covering their heads, their ears, facing the wall, 
trying to remain invisible, trying to wake up from the nightmare. A woman giving birth was not assisted, just pushed and screamed onto the filthy floor. Dozens of them. One pushed out a child with a huge grunt. And she then goes on to describe in quite detail one of these um, jellyfish-like creatures comes down and completely covers this woman and inserts things into every single orifice. Um, it was it was too much. <laughs> it's too much for this. Wow, Even okay. that is quite a lot. Yeah. Wow. And she she there's a lot of this. She describes this absolutely enormous. It must be a craft with thousands of women going through all kinds of stuff, and they're all women, all of them. Right. And at the end of it, she's put into what she can only describe as a shower room, and she's covered in, again, this substance which calms her right down, and she feels okay. And then there she is. She wakes up. She's in the field. She's lying naked on the ground. She's surrounded by the familiar red light. But just a few feet away from me, she discovers the red light isn't the spacecraft. It's the brake lights of her car. Her car is on. Her clothes are bundled by the door. It's about 20 feet up a track in the field and had just stopped on an entrance to some woodland. She says, I can't remember driving up there, but she quickly puts on her clothes, gets in the car. It's been three minutes since she last remembers anything. It's 8.03. She's been gone for three minutes. But she says... But she didn't see anyone. There was no one else with her in the field this time. No, no. She says in her own words, I had witnessed the living hell, a scene from Hades, a nightmare that seemed to last for hours upon hours, but it had all happened in three minutes. And... That is kind of a summary of the story that she gives about being on board the craft. And Gavin says, look, are you sure you want me to publish this? And she says, oh, absolutely. You must tell people what's going on here because there'll be other women like me. We need to find help for each other. This This is not me doing it for my own personal gratification. This is other people will be going through this and believing like me that they're going mad. We must find out who all these other women are. She also points out that all those people that go missing every year that are put down to, I don't know, serial killers or just wandering off into the woods, she said this is responsible for that as well. Right. It's affected her so deeply that she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sink away She's been given some inheritance, strangely, by that grandmother that she described earlier. She left her enough money to set her up for life. And the last email she says, uh, she sends to Gavin is she says she's off Heathrow Airport and she's going to disappear and he'll never see her or hear from her again uh, because she needs to do something, you know, different. She can't hang around where she is. But you must publish this story. And... That last part on the spacecraft, that goes on for like 30, maybe 40 pages. Mm. And there's some very intricate detail in there. But I felt like if this is this is either a really sick sci-fi thing, but I don't think it is, the detail that she comes into and the anguish, there's a point where when Gavin questions whether this is real and she needs to seek psychiatric help, she screams obscenities at him. And she's like, either either you believe me or you can get out because I'm sick and tired of people not believing me and you need to believe me. This is my only hope of getting this story out. Wow. And so this is what kind of what changes his mind. But then he's he sort of thinks, right, we we know about those those Welsh triangle encounters from the you know, fifties through to some of the modern age, he wonders how many people could describe something very similar to what she has been describing in a modern day. And he collects loads of accounts um, himself from, from 2000, this is from 2009. Um, But listen to these two. So these, these are written in first person, but they're sent. These are extracts of emails sent to him. 
This wasn't a dream, and my daughter and I witnessed it while walking our dog down the Goyle, which is a wooded area next to the river where uh, a lot of this action uh, with, with Susan's happened. When our dog stopped walking, she wouldn't move, and my daughter and I both witnessed a ball of red light, about the size of a football, shoot up the river. Where it passed, it left a wake in the water. We quickly walked back and have never been there again. And then from another person... One night I had a vivid dream that there was a bright orange light coming in from the window, brighter than a street light, and in the corner is a tall, so tall man. He's like a stick, so skinny, but it's like he has a motorcycle helmet on, but his neck looks too thin to hold the weight. Many times I have woken up and I'm staring at the corner of the bedroom. I hate having those feelings that something is there, and I've been talking to someone or something... So those that's just two right. accounts which are not a million miles away from what Susan is describing. But reading her account, it's so detailed. It's so descriptive. There is no, oh, we are good. There is this insinuation from these made-up entities which, um, you know, her grandmother, her young self, you know, there is there's a suggestion here. You need to help my friends. Would you love a baby? Mm-hmm. It's like she's being programmed. And what she's describing on board that craft, it is absolutely a hybridization program, isn't it? I mean, that is what it is. And was there anything in the book about a baby for her or any pregnancy or anything? No, no. no. She doesn't know what they wanted with her. She doesn't know what they wanted with an old woman have it with yeah, dementia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. doesn't know what they want with the young child. Well, let's just... I mean, it's an incredible story. I mean, let's let's try and look at it from a few angles. So in terms of the author, there was a sceptic bit of me when you said that uh, Susan, her, not her real name, yeah. had come into some money and disappeared and said, you will never find me again. Quite that... There was a bit of a sceptic in me going, that's quite convenient for our author. To be clear, she'd always had that money. And it was what she describes at the front, the reason why she's putting herself through university and doing a part-time job is because she's saving that money to to set her up for life. No, I get that. But if he's made it up, the author... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying he is, but... I, I, there was a bit of me that went, it's quite convenient that the person that you've been talking to and co- can co- collaborate, or collaborate all this d- says, I'm disappearing and you'll never be able to contact me again. That There was a little bit of something in that for me. That's um, right. Yeah. Um, but it could, it, it, I, I will point out that he, she does sign all the papers required for publication. So this is right. a, this is a, a properly published book. Yeah. And she signs all the release forms yep. and gives has to hand those over to the publisher. Of course, they could be made up, but they'll have addresses on. They yeah. will have, yeah. you know, other personal details. So it's, it's one of those things as well where you kind of go, the kind of detail you're talking about is quite disturbing for a passing something off as fact that's fiction or you know, kind of creepypasta type stuff. It's quite extreme to go that length for it. Um, I guess that leaves the other option that we've touched upon, which is, is this her way of processing some other kind of traumatic event in this way? You know, I, I mean, I have read some stuff about people who've suffered terrible abuse and almost the only way they can express it is in some kind of, you know, fantasy reenactment of it. You know, it's the it sounds weird considering what you've described, but in some ways it's the only way that they can make it bearable to deal with in any shape or form. Um, But if you if you discount those two things and it is a genuine story it's incredibly disturbing and detailed and uh, yeah just wow wow yeah i mean obviously if it's made up we we can't um we can't prove that lenny died we can't prove yeah. 
that Mogs died, we can't prove that the auntie died um, because we don't know who they are and they could just be figments of a a fictional imagination. However... Well, sorry, can I, sorry, yeah. can I just... Because I was just thinking that through. Unless there's something else. You're almost going for three things, aren't you? The kind of... And again, just to be clear, I'm not saying he did, but a sceptic would say the author could have made the whole thing up. Then there's the person who's telling the story could believe it, but it didn't happen or is making it up or it did really happen is the third one. But I, I keep thinking back to if you go for the middle routes, I'm assuming that the author would have checked out the people who were with her who saw the the guy who was with her who saw the ball of light and the people that uh, made those statements. She said there was like a fish, there's people fishing, stuff like that. So there must have been things that corroborated her story. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There were, there were. Um, I don't think he spoke to Adrian or the friends because she is keeping herself very private. Right. So but, there's, there's a chance he didn't confirm it and just took her word, maybe. Yeah, but he did confirm the sightings yeah, yeah, on that yeah, night. Yeah. On that night, yeah. yeah. Wow. So that if you go kind of with that, you're almost left with... Uh, it's 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 something that's completely made up, which is kind of you know the fruit of the poison tree, as they say. So everything that follows is is poisoned in some way. Oh wow, that this on some level happened, which is incredible. Well, the um, I forgot to uh, to mention at the end there because I got excited about those other sightings but the reason why her house could always smells of patchouli and cigarettes oh, yeah. is because she says the stench from that craft she it's can't get it out of her yeah. her nostrils she says it's like worse than death that smell yeah. and the only way she can stop smelling it is to completely drown her senses with this stuff and she also sort of um speculates that uh, so her grandmother died of cancer her auntie died of cancer she's wondering whether they are taking people in family lines like generational yeah yeah and the the side effect of being probed by these jelly like jellyfish like creatures yeah. is is this bad you know it's cancer or the drugs that they're spraying or the drugs yeah yeah, yeah yeah i mean the owl thing weird as well and that kind of the mechanical owl that's incredible yeah and the the whole fox thing we've seen that from some other reports owls absolutely we've covered that and she does say at the start but of course she would write this into any fictional character she had no interest no interest at all in ghosts ufos or anything and she does speculate a little bit so gavin is known for writing he wrote a book about um a heavily haunted uh, place and so he has some experience of writing about the paranormal and she knows this right. but she says there are elements of my story which sound similar to other elements of the paranormal and i wonder whether they're all connected and that is something that we've spoken yeah, about there yeah, before yeah. and and that's why i was pointing out that the grandmother saying you've got to look after my friends that is really similar to something coming through on a ouija board and saying you know oh you've got to do this because my friends or they want you to do it who's they or your guides you know there's a whole lot of um you if you just change the name of the actors it sounds really similar yeah and uh, and in terms of her description i was just trying to think for the other ones that you mentioned her description of the alien as that kind of almost uh, kind of large glowing octopusy type creature i took it as is that the did she see that and then was saying there was this tall skinny almost man-like one as well or was it other people that reported the man like no she so she sees don't forget that first time in the bedroom with lenny she sees those the 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 humanoid creatures and then she sees one in the hallway with her auntie Um, it's almost like those jellyfish-like beings, you, you know, there's an insinuation that maybe they are um, machines. Right, right. They could be biological machines. Yeah, yeah. When, when I read this, 
and I mentioned at the top that I'd made this show of Duck Me, I came across one person who I'm not going to name. We did feature him on the show, but he deserves his privacy now because it was a while ago. And I went to see him and he spoke about the first time that he had encountered an alien being. And at this point, I was very much... I think I had read so many accounts of, you know, oh, they're good people, they're good things. And um, it had come into his bedroom when he was a kid and he had been repeatedly taken by what he describes as as these reptilians. And I said, well, what's it like? And he said, it's sheer hell. It's sheer hell. Why do you think I'm here without unable to hold down a job, living in a council flat, too afraid to go out at night smoking my way through the night because i don't want them to come back it's awful and i said well explain why it's awful he said i can't they control you they they push needles into me they don't they do things which are unexplainable which i can't even tell you about but they have ruined my life and i can't get rid of them I'm happy to talk about it to warn other people, but I can't get rid of them. And I just thought, well, that was I, I a man looked me in the eyes and told me that. Mm. And I thought, well, if Susan has gone through something yeah. similar, yeah. but she also says, you know, the reason that I've got you out here to write a book about it is because where else can I go? Yeah. And this is something that we've spoken about. Who who on earth? What are you going to do if you go to a newspaper? She says, I'll be a front page for a day and then I'll be laughed at. And then what? I'll be invited into Big Brother. I mean, what am I, what am I going to do with that? That doesn't help anybody. Yeah, because it'll be a kind of freaky, you know. Exactly. Um, If I go onto television, I'll be on for half an hour and then people will forget about me. Mm. It has to be in a book that other people can discover it, Mm. see their own experiences, realise they're not alone. And perhaps people can come together and fight whatever this is. Now, when I mentioned the Kaz Clark incident, I'm so many other podcasts and it's been covered on the telly. I'm not going to go. There's no I can't tell a story better than she has. She's told it to about four different podcasts. But in a nutshell, she the main point about this is she sees this strange um, uh, military activity with these early warning attack craft um, the, those like jumbo planes yep. uh, with the, the uh, satellite dishes on the back. And then she sees this huge, huge pyramid craft sort of come from another dimension and be intercepted by these military craft. And this is down in this part of Wales. And there was a piece of me when I was reading this thinking, hmm, I wonder whether we know that this is going on and this is part of a fight back. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, because... uh, Yeah, because the implications are... I mean, it's full-on X-Fat... X... (laughs) X X It's a no from me. (laughs) (laughs) It's as scary as going to the auditions on the X-Factor. No, it's full-on X-Files, isn't it? That kind of colonisation theories and, you know, that if if we do know about that and something like that's going on, then it, it, it is on some level a war, isn't it? It is a war. Yeah. Um, but what, what is it a war with? Yeah. Because And why? And why? Yeah. And why? I mean, it must be a hybridisation programme. It must be. Yeah. But why? What for? Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, we often talk about kind of, you know, ants on this podcast, don't we? And, you know, looking at the moon or driving around in cars, not understanding what's going on. But, and we've mentioned this point before, was if this, if an alien species doesn't have to be, you know, malevolent, does it? It just doesn't regard us as, uh, well, it regards us as inconsequential. So, it doesn't feel like it's doing anything wrong. Just like, you know, if we were pouring some water on a ant's nest cause, or laying down some poison for ants because they're invading our house. You know what I mean? We don't care. You know what I mean? It's not like we're being no. vicious or evil. It's just a, or getting, a, getting rid of a wasp nest in your, in your attic, you know? It's interesting you should say that because that is a theme that comes up. Susan 
there's um so gavin goes to make a cup of tea for them and then he can't find any milk and she explains that she's a vegan and she won't have it in the house and it's after she tells him that story she says that when i was up there experiencing that she she had this feeling i wish i'd been nicer to animals right, right. and she instantly became a vegan right. and she said i have witnessed what cows witness every day and i mustn't be complicit in that we must rise above this and be better than them and i thought that was a really interesting thing to come from it yeah 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 well you'd never meet mince again would you <laughs> oh god i mean the whole uh, the imagery is no, so awful uh, it's incredible. there's much worse which i didn't read yeah, out no, much glad, worse i'm glad you didn't but just the yeah I, I, almost well no totally as you were talking through the story it was like you could almost see the movie scenes couldn't you yeah yeah it's incredible well i hope you know if it is a fully genuine story whether it be something where you know like i said it's kind of expressing some kind of trauma in that way or it genuinely happened i really hope that uh the person aka susan has found some peace somewhere yeah i do too um and i think she was very brave and i think gavin is a great author so you'll find him on uh amazon and everywhere else he calls himself gl davis uh at one point we will cover i've, I've read another of his books the horror of Har- haverford west that's easy for me to say uh that is a fantastic book i think he's a great author he doesn't put too much of himself in there he just p- puts forward the facts as far as i can tell um and he has a great the way that he interviewed susan if all of that is real and just let's just assume it is i think he was incredibly competent and incredibly sympathetic to her needs and And get that that amount of detail out and yeah and obviously translate onto the page amazing yeah Yeah. so so um uh do do him a favor go and go and order the book it's only nine quid in paperback harvest the true story of alien abduction brilliant okay well look we uh that was amazing ben i'm just uh i don't think i'm ever going to sleep again um <laughs> i know i know <laughs> but um thank you all for listening we've had some more lovely reviews uh and loving the engagement uh that we're getting on social media in general so uh keep listening keep liking keep subscribing keep reviewing and keep doing whatever else and tell a friend yes tell a friend that is brilliant <laughs> Um, and we will uh, we'll be back with more weirdness on the quantum mechanics next week. See you then. See you then. Take care. Bye. Bye. Quantum mechanics.